You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. The prophet Jeremiah writes that at this time a man will come, a descendant of the house of David, a king who will lift up his fallen people, return them to the laws of God, and lead them and through them all men to the way of peace. I am from the house of David. The prophecies cry out to me and I accept their calling. I believe I am this promised one. The Messiah walks among us. If you must kill, kill only the weak. Are you the one? This year, the Passover feast falls on the Sabbath. I cannot. I will declare myself king. And if it fails, then there is another part to my plan. On Thursday evening, Judah will betray me and I will be arrested. Pilate is already impatient. He feels an insurrection. So the trial will be held on Friday morning. No Jew was left on the cross during the Sabbath. So if the Romans believe I am dead... I will be taken down before the sunset comes and the Sabbath begins. I will survive. When I ask you to help me feign death, Yakov, rusty spikes pounded into your hands and feet, thrill pain, and there's nothing you can do to prepare yourself for it. Some of you call me your Messiah. Do you say... You are? Yes, I do. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Chris Bricklemeyer. Hello. Good to be here. Also back in the booth is Mr. Spencer Parsons. Hello. On this week's episode, we get passionate about a film with a very inflammatory title, The Passover Plot. Released in 1976, the film was directed by Michael Campus and based very loosely on a book by Hugh J. Schoenfeld. It's basically another retelling of the Passion Play. So I don't think that either of you guys have seen this movie. Did you see this movie before, Chris? No, I actually hadn't even heard of it. Yeah, even as much of a Zalman King freak as I am, I had never seen this one before. But I'm I'm really uh, excited now that I have. How are you excited by this movie? I'm so curious. There are a couple of different things. One is actually my Zalman King fandom, and I, I do really like him as an actor. And um, this one really confirms to me that he's a certain kind of poor man's Dennis Hopper. It's really interesting. I, I started to think of him as being a little bit like Dennis Hopper when I saw Trip with the Teacher, where he plays a completely crazy uh, rapist, very different kind of role from this one, uh, obviously. But it seemed like it was years ahead of its time as a kind of Frank Booth sort of performance uh, years before Blue Velvet. And now in this one, I'm getting the kind of weird messianic zone that he goes into in uh, in the last movie. So, um, yeah, Zalman King as, as a, a kind of, you know, strange alternate version of Dennis Hopper is exciting to me. And then I will say, while it's not a particularly uh, fantastic film, it is interesting 
to me as a child of the 70s who grew up in an environment where there were a lot of paperbacks of this kind of stuff around and where my parents would watch whatever, you know, there were a lot of religious things, you know, a lot of Jesus stories and Bible stories and whatnot on TV done in about this this kind of uh, production value level uh, in, in the 70s, in addition to kind of conspiracy books about um, the relative scientific merits and historical merits of the Bible uh, that were that were like on a lot of coffee tables uh, that I was perusing when I was a little kid. So this this movie weirdly takes me back to a nostalgic happy place. Yeah, we've talked about that on the show before. That the 1970s were just a weird time. Like I don't know, there was a gulf of spirituality that happened after Vietnam or the 1960s, but it felt like the 1970s were just a particularly ripe time for people trying to quote unquote find themselves and experiment with different self-help techniques, new age stuff. This is like the dawn of Scientology est. I'm okay. You're okay. All this kind of stuff. And right in the middle of it, you do have Christianity and this new Christianity and the whole idea of, you know, I guess what, when was like, is God dead? Like the cover of Time magazine was like late sixties, right? And so it just seemed like there was this whole movement of we're going to revisit things and think about things anew. And this plays right into it as far as like, Hey, let's look at the story of Jesus, but really try to contextualize it into what was happening at the time. And there are people who, well, there are people who think that God wrote the Bible, and then there are other people who think that when you say, you know, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that those were the guys who were hanging out with Jesus. And it's like, no, those were actually written, like, a long time afterwards, and they were written not in Aramaic, but in Greek, and you've got, like, um, what, a 110-year lag time between Jesus' death and the Gospel of John, and none of these guys necessarily really knew each other. They weren't hanging out or anything. So it's like, yeah, it's it's an interesting take to have Schoenfeld recontextualize stuff. But then as far as how successful of a movie this is, I'm not sure how well that works. I'm curious, Chris, what you thought about this. I like the idea of the person learning as much as they possibly can about the religion and the prophecies and deciding that they want to be that person and they can. But the film itself seemed to meander around that point when from what i was reading the book is more of a a, like a research paper in a way where it's like this is how this could have been done and this is how they could have done this but here it's like they're they're trying to fall along like a like like an entertainment level lesser jesus christ superstar kind of thing like if Jesus Christ Superstar is the Marvel version, then this is the DC version with the lower production value and the 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 B level actors, I guess. I'm perverse enough that I prefer the DC movies, uh, <laughs> the Marvel movies, uh, and and I will say that that is uh, I'm conscious of the the perversity, but. Uh, yeah, one of the things that that I found problematic about the way that the the plot has to unfold is that they don't even even though this is this is going against the grain, they still have the problem. They got to hit all the beats of the usual passion play, mm-hmm. you know. So so it's just like they got to hit all these famous scenes, whether they really 
make the story go forward or not. And so it, it creates a kind of kludgy dramaturgy here where, um, you know, for instance, part of the way through the movie, th- this was the point at which I realized, oh, right, this is like one of those passion plays where you're not really getting involved on a dramatic level. Uh, you're just kind of going through the motions of these different scenes from the Bible, uh, this sort of pageant kind of approach. Uh, was when um, they get upset uh, that something has gone wrong and somebody's like, but all this work that we've done is going to be for naught. And I'm like, what all work that you did? I haven't seen you do any work yet. What's, <laughs> what's the great work? It's, of course, because it's the, it's assuming that the audience is filling in all the good things that Jesus and the apostles have gone around doing, mm-hmm. uh, because that's how we watch these, these kind of pageant uh, films. But we haven't, in fact seen that done. But in this particular case, it's really important because we're going against uh, the grain of the usual storytelling and trying to prove another thing and to make the characters make sense making the choices that they do um, in order for the the plot to come out the way that it does. It's in a bit of a different territory, but it still ends up with the same, same old troubles. Yeah, I almost wish that they had gone like a Peter Watkins type of route and done like a fake documentary about the time, because that's one thing that Schoenfeld does in the book really well is to say, listen, at this point, 200 years B.C., there was already this much history going on with Judaism. There was already this much history going on with the Romans. And for all of this time, for 200 or more years, you have these prophets who are coming out and saying, hey, we are about to enter the end times. I mean, it feels very similar to today and even like in the 1970s where people are just like, hey, you know what? The year 2000, we're going to be in the end times, you know, back in 1978 or 76 when this came out. But for hundreds of years, you've got these guys who are just like, yeah, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. Then the kingdom of heaven and just really setting the stage. So you've got on one side, all these prophecies. And then on the other side, all the rabble and the whole idea of how dare the Romans come in here and do all these horrible things to us and try to taint our religion. And they're just these godless creeps who have this whole pantheon. And we just have the one true God and really kind of set that stage to say, this guy came along and very, and it's kind of a weird thing because in the book, it's like he methodically saw what all these prophecies were and was able to fit everything he did into that. Like, hey, make sure when you guys go back to so-and-so, like grab me a foal because that's part of the prophecy. When I ride into Jerusalem, I have to be on a foal because the whole prophecy is like, on an ass or a foal of an ass or blah, blah, blah. I don't remember all the prophecies. But then he's like fitting these pieces together. And I'm just like, okay, was he that methodical or was it people interpreting things to say, oh, yeah, this totally fit? I think that's pretty right on. And I I like your idea of an alternate uh, Watkins style film. I I will say, and, you know, maybe we can get into this farther. There there were definitely some moments, especially early on, where I was watching not just with academic interest, but was um, a little bit taken with the filmmaking. It didn't sustain because of the problems of script and storytelling. But there there were actually some things that that were, that were, that were a little bit exciting to me as uh, in terms of getting a sense of the, the strangeness uh, of, of the behavior and that we are among groups of, you know, politically minded uh, religious fanatics within their own time. Um, my issue was more that as it went on, we had to hit these plot beats and we couldn't really expand on 
on this like mood of of strangeness, you know, that hates that history that's beyond. And and then additionally, you're you're exactly right in not being able to fill out where the book gives us the historical context with with like the wider kind of thing. We're 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 putting a whole lot of weight onto uh, you know the shoulders of Zalman King to behave all of this stuff for us through you know one single performance and while he's definitely very weird uh i think in some really good ways in certain moments particularly like the john the baptist scene near the beginning that ends up going kind of ecstatic and slow motion and everything that adds up a, a one one kind of piece in the right direction but i, I, I yeah uh, versus reading the book i don't i don't quite have enough information for the drama to fully work out and to get the to get that rich context that the book is suggesting. Yeah. Cause otherwise it ends up becoming just another passion play where it's just like, okay, yeah, to your point, it's like Jesus's greatest hits, you know, had they managed to fit the whole manger and the three wise men in there as well, it would have been like the complete Jesus. I wish they had done more of the stuff they hinted at where like when he quote unquote cures the blind man, he's a guy pretending to be blind and he's so taken aback when he spits in his face that he forgets he's blind and he has to pretend that he's cured or everybody in town will stone him to death and then jesus's crew turns around and goes hey you see that miracle that was pretty awesome huh and then everybody freaks out i would have liked to have seen more of that yeah i really i really liked that scene and uh and it was very suggestive of a direction where where things could go. And then also the, you know, having read as much as I did of the book after I watched the movie, I watched the the movie first. I think that there's an interesting opportunity to see the kind of tension between somebody who is deliberately creating these opportunities for miracles and then jumping onto them. And yet also to some degree, genuinely believing them, you know, like existing in this, this strange um, sort of level, like uh, like the, the book Going Clear suggests about L. Ron Hubbard, where on one level, Hubbard was aware of what he was making up, and yet also at a certain point fell for his own con and really believed uh, what, what he was getting into. And that, that seemed something that was almost there in the movie, and then we, we, we didn't follow it. Yeah, because it did get kind of standard. With a little bit of, um, okay, so then we're going to do this, and we're going to trick everybody. And then it just went back to, all right, let's uh, tip over all the tables in the temple and <laughs> do all that normal stuff that everybody knows. It kind of feels like, with all of the dissent from um, the public around the book and everything, they it feels like they had to play it kind of toward the middle. And yeah. it feels like the second half of the movie, they're like, all right, well, we will actually be crucified if we release the full Jesus was a fraud movie. So yeah. maybe we ought to let's say something nice Hopefully. about them. And I keep wondering if they're trying to obfuscate the names and stuff to be like, well, we're not really talking about Jesus. We're talking about Yeshua, you know, <laughs> I'm like, OK, who is this supposed to be like? Is it this seems like Simon Peter, but, you know, no, it's it's Shimon or it's uh, it's Jira instead of Elijah. And I'm just like, OK, I understand that biblical names were different than they were like in what we know of today but it felt like they were really doubling down on that stuff yeah and it, it, it's it's interesting because I, I respect the effort but then it makes it more difficult to follow and so then if it's more difficult to follow and see 
who are the characters, especially when it still goes in the pageant direction. It's it, it makes it a little bit hard. The other thing that didn't help this movie either is that we are watching a really shitty VHS transfer that was compressed to hell. And so, and then it's got like those lousy Chiron titles at the beginning. Like they, somebody at some point removed the opening titles and replaced them with these video titles. And I don't know why that decision was made or when it was made. Was that when, you know, Canon put this out on VHS or something? I'm not really sure. And then you get some of those scenes where it almost looks like they're being shot against white. And I'm like, I wonder if there's clouds back there. There's a scene that I called in the notes, the confessional scene where it's a bunch of the disciples just saying like, well, before Jesus, I was doing this or like, I really miss my kid. We've been out here doing all this stuff in the desert and I really want to get back to my wife and child. And it totally feels to me like those B roll confession scenes from like real world or America's next top model where it's just like, okay, you know, and again, it kind of reminded me of that Peter Watkins documentary style where it's like, okay, now we're going to cut to, you know, we're going to, there was a, uh, a Bible film that was hilarious a few years ago called, uh, the real Old Testament. And I remember Lot's wife was on there and she's like, I'm Lot's wife. Um, everybody refers to me as Lot's wife, but I have a name. I'm Myra, Myra Lot. Well, this is also interesting, though, as a canon film, isn't it? In, in, in the sort of the canon canon, you know, one, this never gets mentioned, like ever, which is not exactly surprising, but it is it's a it's a fascinating item to discover as as like a canon movie, and there are actually some particular uh, narrative choices in how they they tell the story. Um, you, you know that they're trying to keep uh, they're trying to keep Christians happy, but they're also they're also doing some very particular work to n- not let the story be as anti-Semitic as most of the contemporaneous tellings and. Uh, and, and not nearly as anti-Semitic as, you know, frankly, just a lot of the traditional tellings of of Jesus' crucifixion, because you can look at the Gospels and not necessarily see too much of um, an anti-Semitic bias. But the way that the story gets told, I, I, one thing I found interesting is I'm, I'm used to seeing Caiaphas get played as the bigger villain than Pontius Pilate. And in this case, as a as a production, you know, by uh, Israelis, we're getting we're getting a movie in which Pontius Pilate is definitely the big villain. Rome is the big villain, and Caiaphas is trying to hold things together, um, and is 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 ultimately not so much a villain as like a bad politician. And again, you know, from my own experience growing up with lots of these kinds of movies, that was actually a dramatic thing that I found to be kind of interesting and and honestly, like you know, refreshing when considering stuff like the Passion of the Christ in recent years. Could they have found a more articles of zion type looking guy than hugh griffith as caiaphas because he just looked like you cannot be more jewish than this guy looked and it was just like to the point of like being disturbed a little bit whether it's makeup or it was really with him he's kind of got a lazy eye and there's something about the there's this you know in the way that he his hair and and makeup and costuming are all done yeah he's definitely in this this like kind of horrific monstrous stereotypical zone but then that plays against um you know the way that they're trying to dramatize it so that it's it's not not quite as bad it's really funny the mixed impulses coming through in the film his look played into his uh, fanaticism like nothing on earth could have done a better job 
to make somebody <laughs> look crazy for their religion than that guy's face. I mean, he he shows up, Hugh shows up, and it's just, oh, that guy's serious. And yeah. Let's not cross him because he's going to eat our noses off of our heads. He was kind of scary in a way. I wasn't ready for in this because it was the whole thing is kind of light in a way and it's kind of poking here and there and you know loomis is running around yelling about stuff and <laughs> he he's, is always loomis isn't he yeah yeah hey Lonnie, get your ass away from there i have this really bad habit of just referring to actors by their character names i don't know pleasance is just he's he's yelling as loud as he can i think maybe he thought they were it was a stage play or something because he was he was beyond wasn't he just i mean he didn't get the energy in the room he's like i'm gonna supply my own energy and you're all gonna pick up on this and we're gonna go from there but yeah he totally chewing the scenery yeah but hugh can come in and with a look he can just deflate or terrorize an entire room I, i'm not saying one way or the other whether this movie's good or not but he is worth the price of admission hugh hugh griffith is definitely a reason to watch this well he's jutting his lower lip out he's got those crazy fucking eyebrows and yeah the lazy eye and stuff it's just like wow yeah to your point do not mess with this dude yeah honestly he looks like he should be one of belloc's advisors in raiders of the lost ark i'm uncomfortable with the thought of this jewish ritual it's kind of funny to see a movie uh, with Dan Hedaya in it and not recognize him for about half the film. Uh, eventually, I caught on that that's who he was, and I I, I you know knew from the opening credits. Um, but uh, yeah, Dan Hedaya not not recognizable, and that's that's very strange. Well, he's just not doing Dan Hedaya things, you know. He's not doing the dumb husband on cheers he's not doing the over the top police chief from running scared he's not the creepy husband from blood simple he's just so sedate in this movie and yeah until they finally give him like his close-up and jesus is like you're a doctor how about you come up with this potion and you make it look like i'm dead i'll go up on the cross you give me this stuff you take my body home, and then, hey, I'll come back to life three days later and thrill the shit out of everybody. Oh, man. I got to also mention, very brief appearance, but I'll, I'll take whatever I can get because her filmography is pretty short. But anytime Helena Kalianotis shows up in a film, I just freak out. You know, the, how she appears very briefly here as um, – what is she credited? She's credited as, like, the visionary, visionary woman. woman. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, I always like her presence in any movie, and I – I, I, you know, flash to five easy pieces or Eureka, um, in this case, uh, especially Eureka, but I, I did like seeing her there. I, I'm just going to keep naming all these things that make me sort of nostalgic and, and, and warm and happy with this movie, even though it's not really a great film. This movie was so guy heavy. I think she's one of the only women credited, if not the only women when she showed up, I was like, Oh, all right. It's time for Mary Magdalene to show up. No, no Mary Magdalene. No Mary, the mom, when Jesus gets crucified, you expect those two to show up, you know, at least RSVP and neither one of them showed up. And I was just like, okay, we're, we're just not doing it with the women characters at all. We just have all these dudes hanging out and that's going to be it. The way that it's really trying to serve the, you know, serve its different masters is very 
it, it's very strange. It makes it, um, it, it, it makes it tough because it, it, it yeah, wherever, wherever, for instance, the research that went into this book, um, you know, might've suggested, oh, that version of the story isn't really real. So they've left out, you know, key characters, these moments that we know really well, the background work hasn't been done to set up well, why is it not Mary Magdalene? Or why are we going to focus on this character who's not mentioned, but maybe is an amalgam filling in for other people? Uh, you know, what, what's, what's the deal with how and why they're missing? And I, I, I really, I really wish that, um, yeah, either a, a sort of, um, I'm wishing for another movie, which is always a bad position to be in, but like the, you know, your Peter Watkins and, or another kind of thing where they just, you know, uh, threw out uh, a lot of the usual passion play stuff and said, no, we've got to start over on the Jesus story. And it's going to overlap in places, but it has to it has to serve its own plot from beginning to end. I can't believe we've gone this whole time without talking about Scott Wilson showing up as Judah, who has to be Judas, right? But again, they're obfuscating the, the name. And, you know, I always feel bad. The way that Judas is portrayed in different passion plays, I'm always curious that as far as like, is he the big villain or is he the guy who Jesus says, you're going to betray me. I need you to go out and do this, set this up, you know, and that's to me very much like the Judas in um, Jesus Christ Superstar is like, I need you to do this. I don't want to do that. You need to do it. Go out, freaking do it. And then when they try to give him his 30 pieces of silver, he's just like, I don't want your money. Just keep it. You know, I didn't want to do this, but, and then in that one, it's kind of more, it's almost, um, there's another character in here who's just like, Jesus, you're talking way too loud. You know, you get your, you really need to just cool it with all these sermons because you're going to get into trouble with this stuff. And that's kind of the Judas role in Jesus Christ Superstar. But in here, it's another character who's just like, yeah, you really need to cool it with this stuff. But then eventually Jesus is like, no, this is my thing. I need to hit all the beats, basically. I mean, everybody likes Louie, right? I don't like Louie. I love Louie. I love everybody. That's my thing, man. Yeah, when I was growing up, Judas was, how it was presented to me was, um, Jesus said to Peter, uh, you'll betray me. And he said to Judas, you're going to, you're going to be the one that turns me in. And, um, uh, not betray. Peter didn't betray, but he said he would. Um, he he denied deny knowing him yes. before the cock crowed. Yeah, right. And Judas betrayed him. And I I never interpreted it as you're going to do this because I'm saying you're going to do it. I it, it always to me felt like a little bit of a threat. Like you're going to do this. You that ha- you can't stop it, whether you want to or not. So I really like seeing all the different versions of it where in this one he says to 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 Judah, "Okay, uh you got to go do this now." And he's really upset cuz it's his best friend and he's like, "I don't want to." It's like, "Yeah, that's the deal we made, so go." Thousands of different interpretations of one story. It's I, it's it's one of the parts I never thought of. Although my favorite Judas thing is uh, you know, God cursed him to be a vampire after he betrayed Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Which version is that in? I know I've heard of it before, but I think uh, it was uh, Dracula 2000. I saw it once. I may be wrong if that, that for, for being that one. A lot, a lot of folk tales uh, surrounding this stuff. You know, not the official version like we have in printed form, which has never changed for the last two thousand years. No one's ever mistranslated that or done a new translation or various things to that thing. 
It's just, it's the exact words that were written in Greek. That's why we always read the Greek version of these things. The director's cut. Exactly. Exactly. One of my best friends, uh, when I got one of my first jobs, was a Jehovah's Witness. And most people are just like, ooh, Jehovah's Witness. But he was so knowledgeable when it came to the Bible, and he never tried to proselytize to anybody. So it'd be like, hey, Eric, what's the what's this deal with this? You know, and you would talk to him about something in the Bible and be like, well, in the King James version, it says this. And then in this version, it says this. And he would like take it all the way back to like the Greek and be like, so, you know, just do with it what you want. But this is some of the translations. I'd be like, oh, shit, that's fantastic. Thank you. He was also great because the whole thing with Jehovah's Witnesses was there's going to be 144,000 people that get into heaven. And here it is, 1997. He's like, I'm sure by now they've already hit their quota. So I'm not going to get into heaven, but, you know, I'm just going to try to live my life the best I can. This is also, I mean, this is very much like a conspiracy movie. And, um, you, you know, the like watching it did um, did make me go back and dig up the stuff about the book. I, I actually came across a pretty good uh, radio show where the where where the author was really having to battle it out with a couple of uh, American fundamentalists. It was it was mm. it was just brutal. Uh, you know, early seventies radio blood sport. How how does this? Uh, it, it doesn't it doesn't like work great as a biblical movie, but. Um, I, I, I'm I'm kind of interested in what you guys think about it as as a kind of conspiracy movie and as as like conspiracy thriller uh, because in, in a way this is this is the sequel not this this is the prequel to uh, the Da Vinci Code uh, and and whatnot um, we have we have a movie that's like fitting one of those. Uh, conspiratorial things that usually gets played out in the present and you're revealing the ancient old secrets that will rock rock the entire world, except this one is actually playing out the ancient old secret that allegedly will rock the entire world. Uh, how, how, does it, how does it work as conspiracy for you guys? Well, I just wanted to add on real quick that there was actually a book that was written solely to uh, discredit uh, Schoenfeld's work, which was the Passover plot exposed by Clifford Wilson. Also a great cover to it that was basically the old cover, but then somebody stamping the word exposed across the cover. It was fantastic. I could see that being at the checkout counter at F&M or something, you know? They were completely off the rails from the get-go because, you know, I, I know where my own sympathies lie, but like the, these fundamentalists coming in and the first thing that they that they say You've made Jesus a fraud. You've made Jesus a fraud. And and then he says back to them, no, of course I haven't. You haven't read my book. And they're like, yes, I read your book and you made him a fraud. No, I didn't say that. And it, it was almost, I mean, we've been waiting to bring up Monty Python, uh, I suppose, uh, because this is like uh, Life of Brian without laughs in a way. But it really was like a kind of strange Monty Python uh, event with, with these people arguing over over material. And I want to see a version of, well, I want to see the um, the Paul Verhoeven version of Jesus, because of course, you know that Verhoeven has been on the Jesus Seminar Committee like since the 80s, and he really studies all this stuff to figure out the, the non-supernatural historical person of Jesus. And he wrote that entire book, and he's been trying to make a movie forever. I don't know if his movie is going to happen, but... Um, the, 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 this one also makes me happy is just like adjacent to the potential of a Paul Verhoeven Jesus movie. And the, the fact that um, Zalman King is in it, uh, you know, gives it that little extra Verhoeven style sleaze that I like. 
I kept thinking of Life of Brian. I mean, I love Jesus Christ Superstar, so of course I think of things in that terms. But then, yeah, when you get to certain things, I'm just like, you know, his shoe, his shoe, he left his shoe, and just all those kind of things. Like, we're going to take this thing and reinterpret it to be this other thing. And yeah, I just kept thinking of that as well. And there's like a, at one point they ask him, you know, have you ever said, the name of the true God. And I wanted him to be like, Oh, you mean Jehovah? And then <laughs> they just started throwing <laughs> stones at him. Look, I had a lovely supper. And all I said to my wife was that piece of halibut was good enough for Jehovah. Oh, for me. He said it again. <laughs> Did you hear him? <laughs> Are there any women here today? There is the really uh, you know, fun plot turn where where Jesus and his disciples decide we've got to team up with another religious group. Where I could not help thinking, oh my God, the the Judean People's Front is about to team up with the People's Front of Judea. That's where that tension comes from, right? Is that whole idea of Elijah, who I think is supposed to be Simon Peter, at least he's Simon Peter in the Jesus Christ Superstar uh, version where it's like that, you know, Christ, I know I love you. Did you see our ways? That whole song where it's like, Hey, you need to take the reins and be this political ruler and lead us against Rome. And that's where that nice conflict comes in is versus, you know, religion versus politics here. And then they address that a little bit in this movie. And, and again, when he, when Elijah, the first time we meet him, and he's got that great fake beard, and he's just like, are there any Romans in the audience tonight? And I was just like, oh, man. <laughs> and then, too, when they're talking about Latin, it's, and oh, yeah, that's another thing that he does, is he says, We sent him a petition asking him to stop taking money from the temple. Money that he's using to build his aqueduct. I just flashed to that scene in Die Hard 3 where uh, they tell him that they, they took the trucks up the aqueduct and he's like, why are they going to the racetrack? So I thought, why do these guys need a racetrack? And it meant nothing to anybody <laughs> except for me amusing myself during this whole thing. I know you like Zelman King and I like Scott Wilson, but both of these guys, a lot of times they just play their characters like they've they're almost like shell-shocked Vietnam vets. They just have that like 3,000-yard stare. And they go from that. I mean, King sometimes will just scream his head off, but most of the time it just seems like he's a zombie in this. And I don't know if that it's that whole thing of this is my fate. I'm the one who's going to fulfill all this stuff. I need to follow the plan or what it is, why he is so zoned out. But he plays it like that so much. It felt to me like he was trying to um, exude that Prince of Peace kind of 
I'm calm all the time, Spock kind of composure, but it just it just looked like he was sunbaked in the desert and doesn't really know where he is. Uh, that's interesting. I'll, I'll say that it actually mostly worked for me. I, I, I didn't have a problem with, well, maybe I'm just such a Zalman King cultist. That's definitely possible. I didn't really have a problem with, with Zalman King's performance. It was sort of, it seemed like he knew what he was up to. And, and in fact, some of the calm and the thousand yard stare, that was part of what I liked about it because it made him seem strange and sort of, mm foreign it actually it actually gave me a little bit of a of the sense of oh no this is like a real visionary not a movie visionary he's like on this mission and then occasionally he, he you know he blows up but he's he's not he's not playing he's not playing like a movie crazy person he's playing for me a, a fairly believable fanatic the the trouble was that the that the drama between him and the other characters was never adding up so that it could so that that could pay off. So I don't know. I tend to blame the director uh, mm-hmm. in this case more than Zalman King because I, I think I think you guys are basically right. But there there was something fascinating to me about his performance. And again, I guess maybe it's the the the, the sort of bargain basement Dennis Hopper thing that he does that um, that I really I really enjoy. I don't know. It, it, it's it's interesting. The movie seems not quite able to. No movie except for like maybe uh, uh, Pasolini's. Um, you, you know, gospel according to St. Matthew really gets the, the gets at this foreignness, this like real strangeness and kind of science fiction quality of, of, of seriously thinking about what people believed and how they believed it and expressed it um, in that kind of time and place. And I'm not I'm not saying that like Pasolini is historically accurate uh, per se. That's not really what this is about. It's more about like really putting yourself in this this like different place so you can think a little bit more clearly about this document that has come to us or this pile of documents that's come to us, you know, over time um, with, with so much weird stuff attached to it. Michael Campus directed six movies that I know of, and this is actually the third one that we've talked about on the show. We've talked about ZPG and the Mac before, we haven't talked about survival, Thomas Kincaid's Christmas Cottage, or the education of Sonny Carson on this before, but ZPG, it's a good movie, but it left a lot to be desired. The Mac, I always describe as being less than the sum of its parts, but I still love that movie. He was more of, um, like a, a, let's say a low budget director than necessarily somebody who should be doing like a big biblical epic, going over to Israel, shooting this kind of stuff, you know, doing like that kind of Norma Jewison kind of thing. You know, compare this to like the last temptation of Christ and it's just like, wow, okay, you know, one's the dime store version and one's actually like should be shown in the movie theater. But, um, yeah, it feels a lot of times almost like a TV movie. I wouldn't have been surprised had there been like fades to black for commercials. And I do think in that 70s way, it's actually remarkably, you know, it's kind of um, professional hack competency that's there. (laughs) Which, again, you know, speaks to my nostalgia because uh, there's so much now where I'm like, oh, and as good as a professional hack. Um, so there's, there's like a good bit of competency to it, but it's the sort of, yeah, it's like what a Martin Scorsese brings to it. Uh, uh, and, not, and not just because, oh, Scorsese is so great. No, no, no. It's, it's just like taking the story really seriously and dramatically as an artist and not, not as the craft person who shows up to make sure that, you know, it's, it's going to fit between all the Alpo commercials. You can say what you want about Harvey Keitel's Brooklyn accent when it comes to playing Judas in that movie, but 
I mean, you've got Willem Dafoe just knocking it out of the park with his stuff, and everybody seems to be playing on an even playing field versus what I was talking about with that thousand-yard stare versus Pontius Pilate just chewing the scenery and just going fucking apeshit in every single scene. And I love Donald Pleasance. I mean, we just talked last week about Donald Pleasance and how much we love him. But yeah, it feels like he is just, I'm going to play this to the hilt. Try and stop me. You cannot do it. Almost like, almost like if I'm going to be the bad guy, then I'm going to, I'm going to be a cartoon bad guy. I'm going to be so over the top that you can't mistake me for anybody else. Yeah. You can keep your Caiaphas. You can keep your Herod. Any of these guys, fuck them. I'm the bad guy here. Oh yeah. Herod's hardly in it either. He's my favorite in, in Jesus Christ Superstar. That brings down the house every time. <laughs> that song is so good. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's remarkably little Herod here. It's just, it's weird. It just has that problem of it, it's it's like uh, you know the biblical adaptations have a similar problem to certain Shakespeare adaptations where you know you got to make all the cuts in order to get the running time down because you don't have four hours to tell it. But then you also want to leave in all the big speeches that everybody knows by heart and that. Are big fan favorites but once you cut it down to that length and you put the pieces together they don't actually make sense with one another and that's that's really the biggest problem that this has is it's got it's trying it's trying to do two very distinct jobs that are really at odds and like make and 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 make things fit together it's not it's not that i need more of herod in there particularly i mean maybe maybe herod is the thing that needs to be cut out of this it's just the little bit that he's in becomes confusing because it doesn't feel focused with the rest of the information that we're getting right in that they kill john the baptist off screen and they just like make mention of it in dialogue and i'm just like well that's actually kind of a big story as well it's like just don't even mention it if that's the case did you guys notice the cameo appearance by the ark of the covenant yeah (laughs) no when was that when was that So they have that whole thing with Elijah where they're like, we're going to storm the temple. You need to create a diversion. They see the black smoke. They go running into the temple. They're ready to tear shit shit up. Jesus goes into this room and he has a staring contest with the menorah. And he turns around and there's the Ark of the Covenant there. And then they just leave it there. And I was just like, well, that's weird. They could have used that to just lay waste to armies. (laughs) <laughs> that's amazing that's incredible yes somehow i did not i did not catch that um as it was going well yeah so it's also a prequel to uh, raiders of the lost ark now the hebrews took the broken pieces and put them in the ark when they settled in canaan they put the ark in a place called the temple of solomon in jerusalem where it stayed for many years until all of a sudden whoosh is gone where well nobody knows where and it, they left it there to be wiped clean by the hand of God. At the very least, it was uh, a golden calf, right? So that they, that should have been destroyed anyway. Like, what are they hiding in there? What else? Is Thanos' glove in there, too? This movie really, really could have used an Orson Welles voiceover. It desperately cried out for, you know, the, the Orson Welles voiceover treatment for... You know, hacky biblical conspiracy stuff. Yeah, it would have helped um, a lot. Right there with the man who saw tomorrow. Exactly, and he did a couple of others that were out there too. But that's of course the most famous, and um, and I love it. Well, we've got that opening scroll, and then the end scroll almost comes too late, where it's just like, oh, by the way, there was this huge thing that happened—the uh, Christian uprising in forty to sixty A.D. 
And then the Gospels, they started to be written in 80 AD, and the last one was finished in 110 AD. So it was basically, they didn't connect the dots there to be like, so what you know is probably 100% made up, but we're not going to actually say that. We're just going to say, by the way, there was this thing that wiped all these historical records clean, and then these were written all this time later. And they just kind of put it in your lap. I mean, that was always the problem when I was like, when I would write term papers and essays and stuff in high school, I would lay out all of these facts and then expect the reader to make the conclusion. And I always got dinged for that. And in this case, I'm just like, oh, that's exactly what I used to do. And now I'm dinging this movie for it. Again, back to the conspiracy thing. The the way that the plot ends up working out is is like a... It's kind of it's sort of interesting as as like a biblical version of uh, Delillo's Libra, the conspiracy that goes wrong, uh, which then creates this other bigger thing that was not expected by the conspiracists. I find that kind of interesting. While um, you know, dramatically, the movie doesn't hold together. Hadea gives him this drug. He, it knocks him out. They're like, "Hey, can we take the body?" And the Romans are like, "Yeah, sure. What the fuck? Go ahead." They take the body away and like, hey, Jesus, you need to wake up now. He wakes up. I was expecting him to go into witness protection and eat egg noodles and ketchup like a schnook. But instead, he ends up dying. And it's just like, oh, okay. So it's like we kind of have our cake and eat it, too, that Jesus ends up dying, but he didn't necessarily come back. But he did come back. But it was because of the drugs and all this kind of stuff. So it's just this weird mix and so it's, it really ends on a weird note and like i said they don't necessarily say like yeah the thing that you know isn't as cool as you thought it was because really without the without the death the real death and the jesus saying like i will die for this cause without that martyrdom it really robs the whole christian faith of the pizzazz so i can see why people are so upset about this book when it came out I didn't read the whole book. I read I read chunks of it and found it found it to be you know pretty interesting. At a, at a certain point, I I I I was excited by like the the, the scholarship and um, you know working from uh, hints and suggestions of historical record as to what you know certain things could mean. I mean I, I like I, I I like this this particular author's take on how certain events in um, uh, Jesus' life would be included by whoever wrote gospels about him because that's what you write about a holy man. That's what you write about a prophet. Not because they knew for sure that it literally happened, but because these are the events that the audience expects. You know, it's the genre. You got to go genre. And I find that an interesting approach to, you know, sort of how to make sense of some of the the, the supernatural stuff, and especially how to make sense of it, you know, now in a world uh, where there are people that take this stuff literally, whereas those who wrote it and, and some of the first of those who read it wouldn't have taken it literally at all because, you know, literally wasn't really a thing, wasn't wasn't really a concept. There's there's really a problem in not just even in the in, in uh, the passion play, but in. In, in sort of um, traditional drama of representing all all the kind of elements that are in play for something like this that really come from uh, you know scholarship and openly admitting to hypotheses uh, in order to fill in the blanks that the historical record and that the literature doesn't provide. 
I'm a huge fan of Bart Ehrman, the biblical scholar who has written just a ton of great books. I've listened to a bunch of his books. He um, really did a great job of talking about the different Gospels and why we only know of the four main Gospels in the New Testament and some of the other Gospels that were out there. He's written about the Dead Sea Scrolls, all this amazing stuff. And I just, for an atheist, I really get off on reading biblical literature and kind of figuring out why things are the way they are. Why do we just have these books in the New Testament, what happened to the other books, you know, all the different councils that have happened over the years where they made the decisions to say, this is in, this is out, you know, like, how do these ideas come together as far as, you know, is Christ the Son of God? Is he a version of God? All these kind of things, blah, blah, blah. So Ehrman, a few years ago, he started to, uh, he was saying like, oh, my, I follow him on Facebook. Oh, my publicist says I should uh, try to get out there some more. I should probably be on like podcasts or things. And I was just like, hey, you're always welcome to come on the projection booth. And I'd love to talk to you about this, that, and the other thing. And then just totally ignored me. <laughs> so I was just like, ah. And I've like written to him before and said like, would you like to come on the show? And he's just like, yeah, no, that's not for me. And then he posts that. And I was just like, really, motherfucker? But he's great. I love his work. I wanted to get his take on this stuff because this whole idea of not necessarily revisionism, but the idea of why are things the way that they are? How have they changed over the years? That stuff I really find fascinating. It, it makes me think of, of like this, this moment that uh, is, is mentioned from the, you know, sometimes from the Gospel of Thomas, where, where Jesus as a little kid doesn't understand his own power and strikes somebody dead. That that's actually a miracle that's possible in alternate versions of the Gospel. And, and, and it's really, really interesting because, um, you know, like, I, I think there's an obvious reason why that wouldn't be included in the version of the Gospels that's come down to us. But that's also not an un—that's um, not an unworthy part of a story or of a, uh, a mythology, as you will, to include this moment where, as a child, this god being, not even knowing what he was doing, could just suddenly strike somebody dead. That that's that's the flip side to the the good works that are to follow is is actually you know something that's interesting to think about. But I guess. Um, you know, runs against a lot of faith that is the result of excluding such a fact. Not the fact that it happens. I'm not referring to the event of, of Jesus striking somebody dead as a child uh, when he when he was a child as a fact. I'm talking about the fact that the that the text exists and that people believed that at one time. I really like the part of the Bible where he has these powers and he's trying to use them to make money, and then he gets screwed over when he is in a wrestling contest and he doesn't get the money. And then the the guy who he stole from the wrestling contest, he goes out and kills Jesus's uncle. And it's just this whole irony thing that Jesus has to live with that for the rest of his life, that something, something, power, something, responsibility. Poor I can't Uncle Benjamin. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember which gospel that's in, but that's one of my favorite bits. That was uh, Excelsior. Oh, okay. 26. So, Chris, it sounds like you watch The Return. Yeah. I had heard of this movie, The Return, which is the English title of this. I had heard of this movie a long time ago, and it was just described as Jesus comes back to Earth, joins up with some terrorists, but manages to get out okay. 
And I had no idea to what, what to expect when I finally sat down and watched this movie. Oh, the description I read said Jesus joins a terrorist group, but maintains his integrity. And I watched the movie and I, that was not the case. No, I wouldn't say that he maintained his integrity. You guys watched the movie when I'm the one who needed to watch this movie. And I did. <laughs> it was something. Jesus appears on the Champs-Élysées as an adult in the, in the, in the white robe and everything, and then proceeds to show the audience. He doesn't understand what statues are by trying to, I'm assuming breathe life into one of them. And he is as naive as like a newborn baby deer. But 10 minutes later, he's joined the mile high club after he, after he hooked up with these French terrorists that want to go to Tripoli. I was shocked that the movie took place in 1992 or was released in 92 because it feels like this movie was contemporaneous of the Passover plot. Because yeah, it's it like felt this, like a 70s movie. Right? It totally felt like a 70s movie. The whole idea of these terrorists hijacking an airplane, we want to go to Tripoli, the way that those cartoon character Arab guys come out. And I'm just like, were those set up by the police or did they just happen to have two Arab guys at this fake Tripoli airport. There were some really interesting things there. There, there was a real attempt at attempting to, to try and maybe not shame um, organized religion, but call it out on its hypocrisy. They introduced the Pope. He has a little altar boy sitting in his lap and he's feeding him grapes. Oh yeah. That was something. I'm like, okay, I, I get it. I see what we're doing here continue movie and then later on when the pope is like getting dressed the altar boy is there right at crotch level i was like this is so strange it's not as subtle a satire as as you would hope um because the writer and director definitely have something they want to say i did like some of the some of the things like like showing jesus in his in his plain robes being followed around by the by all of the the Vatican dignitaries in all of their fancy outfits. They didn't have to point it out. It just kind of says, yeah, that's probably not what Jesus would want. <laughs> and he did kind of pull it was either a Stephen Wright or George Carlin thing where he looks at a painting of him on the cross and he's like, "Why do you have this up?" <laughs> <laughs> you want to remember me like that? Thanks. It was odd. And at one point he joins up with these two beggars. Then they start playing this blues song and it just goes on forever and becomes this montage from hell that just will not end. And that was the rest of the movie, if I remember correctly, Pretty right? Pretty much. Yeah. From well, the then middle they finally, point on. Yeah. Then they finally make it to wherever and all these religious leaders show up and then it just becomes like everybody chanting his name and this whole thing. It felt felt very much to me like you know, the lepers or the sick who want to be healed. And which takes us back to the first movie where I'm just like, really, if you guys had better line management, you could probably heal all these guys. But then in the Passover plot, it's like, well, he can't actually heal anybody. So, right. so we better get out of here. Cause I always wondered about that. I always thought that Jesus was the most selfish guy in the world. Cause it's like, you've got that power to heal, but you're not healing people. Why aren't you just doing that all the time? It's, I think that's a legitimate question. Well, and that's, Always oh, the thing that I choked on in Jesus Christ Superstar too, when he's like, there's going to be poor always just look at the good things you've got. And I'm like, well, you could probably change that. 
But, you know, that's just me. That's me being a horrible person. I don't know. I mean, I sort of would recommend this to people. Which one are you talking about? Jesus Returns? Is that what it was yeah, called? The, re- the Return. The Return. Oh, man, I really should have watched this. See, this, <laughs> I'm, I'm missing out. It's not good, but it is a little interesting. I think especially as a double feature. Yeah. With uh with with the Passover plot. Well, good. I'm glad I picked right. I mean, well well so you know, double features always uh are 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 kind of uh kind of exciting and um I I I sort of created an ad hoc double feature when uh, the Passion of the Christ opened and, and it was uh it was out at the same time as the Zack Snyder remake of Dawn of the Dead. Yep. I, I watched Passion of the Christ first and then followed it with Dawn of the Dead, and it actually worked pretty well. Can I tell you how much trouble I got in at the theater I worked at at the time? We would say, uh, people would come up and they're like, oh, we need tickets to Passion of the Christ, and it was selling out like like crazy. And we'd say, uh, it's all sold out, but we got tickets to the sequel right over here. And no one appreciated those jokes, except the people <laughs> I worked with. Of course, I, I'm like, I was the kind of person that like you could tell who you can joke with in line and, and who you can't. This group of college age girls came up and, and said something about um, they had just seen this. It just came to the, the single screen theater they had in Bumble Mare, Wisconsin. As they're talking, I look at them and I'm like, yeah, you know, that's great. But didn't you guys just get back to the future part two as well? And she's like, would you just shut up and give me my ticket? And, you know, joking nicely laughing but it's great to make fun of people when you can <laughs> my uh my manager thought it would be really funny to put me in charge of the group sales for passion of the christ but you know they were the most polite people i have to say not uh, uh, only six or seven of them flailed me i mean it, that really helped put the new christian cinema on the map i mean we're still experiencing this kind of craziness that there are these just this huge market of christian movies these days yeah i mean the 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 four walled stuff is uh is is always pretty astonishing and and genuinely makes a, a fair bit of money you know um but then outside of the four wall you've got uh are, are the, uh, the you've got like the god's not dead movies there have been two of those you know three i think three are there three there probably are three yeah uh, Kelly Reichert was actually like super fascinated with those for a while that, that it, it became a thing where she had to, she had to see the, the, the new Christian movies whenever they came out in theaters, like, you know, the opening weekend, cause they're not going to be around for, for very long, but she was, she was sort of fascinated by, uh, how those work. Well, I just read that Trump is having a screening of an anti-abortion movie and it's not the, the unwanted or whatever that one oh, it's was. It's not that one. It's no, Rosemary's it's baby, one. right? No, it's another one. All right, we're going to take a break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. Du hast dabei einen schönen Ball. Aus bestimmten Anzeichen geht er vor, dass auch dieser neue Mord von dem selben gespenstischen Unhold begangen wurde, dem bereits acht Kinder unserer Stadt zum Opfer gefallen sind. Wer ist der Mörder? 
Wie sieht er aus? Wo verbirgt er sich? Niemand kennt ihn. Und doch ist er mitten unter uns. Jeden Tag erweitern wir das Fahndungsgebiet. Vielleicht doch noch irgendetwas Verwendbares zu finden, das uns zur Lösung des Problems näher bringt. Im ganzen Schriftbild liegt ein schwer erweisbarer, aber intensiv fühlbarer Zug von Wahnsinn. Also hört mal, der Block ist doch umstellt. Wenn er überhaupt noch mal nach Hause kommt, muss er uns ja in die Finger laufen. Ein Außenseiter verdirbt uns das Geschäft und den Kredit. Die Maßnahmen der Polizei, die täglichen planmäßigen Razzien zur Ergreifung des Kindermörders, hindern unsere Tätigkeit in einem kaum mehr ertragbaren Maße. Wir müssen ihn fahren. Wir selber. That's right, we'll be back next week with a look at Fritz Lang's M. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Chris and Spencer. Chris, what is the latest with you? Uh, we're still going with Outside the Cinema. Still, still, still doing that, huh? trudging through that crap, yeah. We got 10 years going, and uh, we're, we're continually finding that there is no bottom to the barrel we're scraping in cold movies. Are you still doing the Are You Serious podcast? I, I'm going to be honest. Um, we did uh, election night live coverage. We tried for a couple weeks after that, and we just couldn't talk about it anymore. Uh, that's on hiatus, I'm going to guess, for another two years. <laughs> then maybe when we're all feeling better, we'll start it up again. That's optimistic. It is. I'm, you know, it's all that keeps me going. And Spencer, what's the latest with you? Uh, well, I, I'm just crashing back into uh, another quarter of teaching at Northwestern. I've got my true crime class going this quarter, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited uh, in, in a couple of weeks to find out what the kids these days make of River's Edge. Whether uh, this will be one of the times, I've shown it a couple of times before, is this one of the times where they go crazy and they just love it? Or is this one of the times where I get a lot of very cold stares as the movie ends? Um, so that's coming up for me in a couple of weeks, and then i got a, uh, a movie to shoot in June. Thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
Spirit, I am overjoyed to meet you face to face. You've been getting quite a name all around the place. Healing cripples and raising from the dead. Now I understand you're a frog. At least that's what you said. So you are the frog, you're the great Kermit frog. Prove to me that you're divine. Change my water into wine. That's all you need to, and I'll know it's all true. Come on, king of the Jews. Kermit, you just won't believe the hit you made around here. You are all we talk about in the wonder of the year. Still I'm sure that you can't rock the cynics if you try So you are the frog, you're the Kermit the Frog Prove to me that you're no fool I'll hop across my swimming pool If you do that for me, then I'll let you go free Come on, King of the Jews I only ask what I'd ask any superstar what is it that you have got that puts you where you are? I am waiting, yes I'm a captive dog I'm dying to be shown that you are not just any frog So if you're the frog, you're the Kermit the Frog Feed my household with this bread <laughs> You can do it on your head Or has something gone wrong? Why do you take so long? Just scared of me, frog, Mr. Kermit the Frog. You're a joke, you're not a frog. You're nothing but a fraud. Take him away, he's got nothing to say. Get out, you king of the. Get out, you king of the. Get out, you king of the Jews. Get out.
Tell me more about this true crime class. Uh, yeah, it, well, it's true crime production. So I'm, I'm doing the, you know, we're, we're, we watch and read a lot, uh, you know, from, from the genre. Uh, but the, the idea is, uh, you know, I teach production, not theory. So this is about the problems of researching and, um, you know, writing and directing and executing short uh movies based on real events and thinking through all of the horrific ethical problems of, uh, you know, basing, uh, a, a, a movie on real life stuff. But, you know, there's, uh, there's actually a ton of, uh, true crime going on when I first, you know, these days and, and, um, you know, running the gamut, uh, from, uh, the continuing, uh, ID channel stuff. And, uh, obviously all the, 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 you know, making a murderer kind of Netflix, um, kind of long form documentaries, but I, I, I'm sort of interested in, uh, you know, what, what are the problems of, uh, you know, fictionalizing, uh, real life events. Um, and so that's, that's what my class this time, uh, it gets into, um, there've been other times where we did documentary approaches to the material, but I got started with it a few years ago before, not before it was cool exactly, but before it really exploded with, um, you know, post serial and, uh, post making a murderer. And now, uh, it's a great class to teach and I really enjoy it, but 
I, I almost dread. I, no, I do dread. I dreaded the run up to it this time because there's simply so much media that I have to keep up with that's brand new. So I can, you know, make sure I'm on top of a good conversation in class and not just going, no, I haven't watched the Michael Jackson documentary. What did you think of it? No, I haven't watched uh, Evil Genius, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. So I really have had to be on top of uh a lot of a lot of stuff. Some of it very good, and some of it very very bad. There, I, I actually think we're now into a decadent period of uh, long form true crime documentaries, and I wish we'd calm down a bit. Um, maybe I'm just cranky because I watch too many in a <laughs> short period of time. But uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give a shout out to a really good one. The Lorena Bobbitt one on um, Amazon is terrific. That's oh. that's like ha- hands down. That's that, I think the best of the the recent true crime docs. Um, and, and the Michael Jackson one is really grim and everybody has a take on it and I'm not going to get into any of that, but I thought ultimately, uh, aside from a very strange aspect ratio that it was, it was quite good. I just started watching the act last night. Oh, tell me about that. How is, is it, is it good? Um, right now it feels like it's really telegraphing stuff uh, and I can almost feel the twists and turns coming, which is kind of a shame. Yeah. Uh, well, that's a really tough story. That one is really, really weird and tough. I saw the documentary on that that was, um, it was on, uh, uh, HBO. Um, and that doc is, uh, I don't know. I didn't think it was bad exactly, but I I was kind of like, oh, this felt like about half the story somehow. Um, and it's because that event is really, is really, really deeply weird. It's really weird. Hmm. Have you seen Evil Genius? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Evil Genius is, is strange for me because I'm not I'm not totally down with the filmmaking, but I l- kind of love the people that it's about and the situation. It is, it's like w- super weird, backwoods, middle aged people doing saw in <laughs> Pennsylvania. And it's just uh, I've never I mean, I follow Florida crime religion. Religiously, and I have to say that each turn in Evil Genius just had me freaking out. Um, so even though I wasn't crazy about the filmmaking, I kind of love that one because, man, that is a situation. Those are characters. That is a story that won't quit. I really think that they should take that and turn that into like a comedy and set it in Grand Rapids, Michigan. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it really, it really feels like a kind of ultra grim funny Coen brothers kind of thing, uh, you know, Fargo, but even nastier in some way. Yeah. I think, you know, put, uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, Jerry's, uh, Oh shit. Ben Stiller, put him in charge of it. I think that'd be hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Well, escape at Danamora was actually like pretty good. I mean, I think that's, I think you're, you're kind of spot on and bring, uh, you know, bring, bring together the, the comedy and the, the, the grimness, you know, uh, escape at Danamora meets, uh, the cable guy would actually be pretty, pretty solid for that story. Do you know what I'm making reference to? I'm pulling your chain about. What are you pulling my chain about? It was 30 minutes or less was the movie. That was a comedy based on that same. You have a bomb on you, and you need. to Are you kidding this. me? I had no idea. Yeah. I had. Uh, that's great. Thank you for pulling my chain. I mean, yeah. that's hilarious. I got a. I I had I had no idea. So somebody's already made a, a a comedy based on that. I can imagine it's it's terrible if if it's not something yeah. we've heard of. Is is it all right? 
Oh yeah, it, it it is absolutely awful, and it's just like, how on earth could you make this into a comedy? Oh, are you still there? I'm still here. Okay, you're still here. Nay. Oh, it's because Jesse Eisenberg was in it. Yeah. Okay. I thought it sounded familiar, but I hadn't seen it. Okay. And Ben still had something to do with it. Okay, let me. St- I think I need to re-add him. Hmm, that was weird. Oh, he was a producer. Okay, good. And there was also a movie, I can't remember, it's from like Brazil or something that also is based on that same same case. Hmm. All right, I'm going to message him real quick. Uh, do, 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 do. Luckily, we we're wrapping up. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, and I already asked you what you're up to. Right. Okay. Oh, he's writing saying I can't seem to connect. Hello. Oh, oh. there you are. Oh, I'm back. <laughs> Woohoo. Oh, you got to look at me. I'm going to turn that off. All right. I'm not seeing you. I'm just seeing the the sky over some lights or something. So, we, oh yeah, yeah, that's the William Eggleston. Uh uh so so um we got cut off at the point that that you you revealed uh that uh that you've been punking me and I'm excited to hear about this particular movie. So is it Ben Stiller who did it? Ben Stiller produced it, and uh, Chris looked it up. It's Jesse Eisenberg in it. And then who's – it's like oh. Minaj. Hassad Minaj is one of the guys. Um, Danny McBride, Aziz Ansari, Nick Swarston, Michael oh, Pena. You know, I, I saw stuff about that, and it looked fascinating to me, but I did not know at all that it was based on that case. I had no idea. Oh, did I lose you again? No, I'm still here. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I was telling Chris, there's another version of the movie that was like a Brazilian or Colombian thriller. It was oh. the same, same case where they put the, the bomb around the neck. And I think it was, it was called something like PVC something or other. Huh? Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. When it was so weird because, you know, evil genius was out last year, but I had heard the story obviously, uh, about this whole thing with this bomb and didn't know all the details or anything. And then when the when 30 minutes or less, when they announced it, I was furious because I was like, shouldn't it really be 30 minutes or fewer? <laughs> <laughs> and then when I found that they were making light of a really serious case, I was then I was also a little mad, too. Mm. Well, it. Yeah, I mean it's it's really really interesting because like uh, you know I'm 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 definitely for the I'm definitely for the dark comedy but um, the uh, it, but it, yeah it's really tricky when you're dealing with uh, with somebody's real life and there is an element of that um, of that story that 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 tilts towards the comic that I don't I don't know that you should necessarily get away from but but at the same time that I I do yeah it's it's re- just doing it as like the the wacky movie where um, uh, Jesse Eisenberg is running around town trying to deliver pizza or whatever, uh, and he might blow up. Uh, that that seems to me like not not quite that not quite to the mark. Because again, back to River's Edge. Uh, part of what I love about that movie is is that it is really funny, and yet it's not um, it is not fundamentally unserious, you know. Or Fargo is not based on a true crime, but they played like it was, and they're de- definitely going into that zone of where real life events can be, you know, very very funny at the same time that they're very grim. But that doesn't mean that they're 
isn't seriousness of purpose to, um, you know, depicting the event. Um, uh, tonally it's, uh, it's, it's, um, really, really tricky. Um, but that's, that's interesting. That's kind of, uh, I'll have to check out that movie. Well, I, I mean, Fargo at the beginning, it says it's based on a true story. So of course it is. <laughs> and, uh, that's total bullshit. They made that up what? and then they were get away with it. <laughs> What? How can that be? I mean, that's lying. I should sue that movie. Just like I sued that movie, uh, The NeverEnding Story, for false advertising. <laughs> All right, guys, I'm going to wrap it up here. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.